Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Nate G, and today I sat down with Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital. Skybridge is an alternative investment firm whose positions include digital assets and the technology surrounding them, as well as hedge funds, equities, and more. Anthony was named one of the most influential figures in crypto and blockchain by Cointelegraph in 2022. And in 2016, he had been ranked among Worth Magazine's 100 Most Powerful People in Global Finance. However, he's also faced his share of challenges, notably in recent years. In 2017, he briefly served as the White House Communications Director for President Donald Trump until the president dismissed him after just 11 days of serving the role. More recently, Anthony sold a 30% stake of his firm Skybridge to the now-defunct cryptocurrency exchange FTX just months before FTX collapsed in 2022. I went into all of this with Anthony, particularly to understand how he came to trust and build a partnership with FTX's founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. We also discussed Anthony's thoughts on the future of money, his macroeconomic and geopolitical concerns, and how he thinks about resilience, picking himself up, and owning up to and learning from mistakes. I enjoyed my conversation with Anthony, otherwise known as the Mooch, and I hope you do too. Anthony, it's nice to see you and uh, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Good to be on. Thank you so much for uh, having me, Nate. Yeah, absolutely. Where are you uh, calling in from today? This could be the closest that I could get to Wharton, probably. You know, <laughs> Maybe you guys will invite me to speak, but uh, I know when I was a kid, I could have never gotten into Wharton. So, Well, who knows? But regardless, I'm excited to have you on the show. And in the intro to the episode, I went over your background, but I'd like it if you could give us a bit of an overview on you and especially on what you've been up to in the past few years in particular. I'm going to go short. I will go pre- I'll give you the, the abbreviated version. So I am the product of a public school in Port Washington, Long Island. Uh, my dad was a crane operator out here. I lived two miles from my folks till I stayed close to home. Um, I went to Tufts University and Harvard Law School. I spent seven years at Goldman Sachs. I left at the age of 32 to start my first company with a partner who was a great, great guy. We created a registered investment advisor and sold that company in 2001 to Newberger Berman. Newberger was then bought by Lehman. And so I spent a couple of years at Newberger and Lehman and I left in 05 uh, to start Skybridge. So Skybridge is gonna be 19 years old on March 7th, mm. 2024. And I think probably one of the more famous or infamous things that I've done in my life is I, I worked for Donald Trump on his campaign. He hired me to be his comms director at the White House I got fired after 11 short days in the administration. So it felt like a catastrophe at the time, but it was actually uh, not a catastrophe. I, I uh, lived on, moved on, and unfortunately, uh, we haven't moved on from the president yet. That's a whole other topic. I don't think we're here to talk about politics, but we're still dealing with him. But the good news is uh, there's life after politics. There's life after a few firings. You know, I've had some ups and downs in my career. I think something more infamous has happened to me recently is I, I sold a piece of my business to Sam Bankman-Fried a year ago, and uh, we're in the process of buying that back from the bankruptcy estate. But the good news there, again, is you know it didn't impact our business. He didn't have any voting shares or anything like that. And I have talked about this ad nauseum on podcasts and, and so forth, I and mean, I'm happy to go over it with you as well. But the good news is, is that uh, we were gradualists. We took cash in for the 
transaction. We lost $10 million on his token, uh, but we put most of the money that we got from him into Bitcoin. So we made that money back in the last mm. year. But that was a rough one too. So, I mean, I am the product of a blue collar family. So to get to where I am, Nate, you got to take a lot of risk. And when you take risk, you have incidents of uh, catastrophe on the way to success, but that's life. You know, Everybody yeah. goes through it, at least the entrepreneurs that I know do, and mm. here we are now. Well, thank you for that overview. And I know that you've gone into FTX and other media, as you've said, but I guess given just the very recent verdict and the trial, I did want to ask mm -hmm. you a little bit about this. Going back to sort of the beginning of your partnership with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, yep. what would you say initially earned your trust in him in the first place and then ultimately led you to sell him a 30% stake in your company, Skybridge? Well, that, that's a really good question. So I think I made a number of mistakes. And let me tell you how people earn your trust, okay? Most of the time, trust comes from vulnerability. And so when you're sharing intimate details of your life with somebody that perhaps are not perfect or they make you vulnerable, and then that person can hold dear what you're saying to them, you start to build trust. So that's a generic comment. But I think in the case of my relationship with Sam, I'm uh, 30 years older than him. I have a son that's six months younger than him. And so mm. I'm not going to say it was a father-son relationship, but it was a generational relationship. And so when I met Sam for the first time, he had this nerdy charm to him. He had this quiet but nice nature. And it was interesting. On the eve of his verdict, Mike Novogratz and I, who's the CEO of Galaxy and a friend of mine, former partner at Goldman, uh, we had this conversation on the air on CNBC talking about how nice Sam was. And people you know, want to revise history now, and there's malevolence there and possibly some sociopathic behavior by Sam. But we just didn't see it at the time. And so- mm -hmm. He came to my conference. He sponsored my conference. We uh, developed a relationship, a working relationship. He entered into a conference sponsorship agreement with me, which was three years, and it was a global deal. So it included our conferences in Abu Dhabi and Singapore, as well as New York. And we then decided to do a conference with him in the Bahamas. And so all of the conversations, the successive meetings, the walks that we did together, and then the bomb, and I'm going to tell you what the bomb was, uh, yeah. because I'm a family-oriented person. In March of 2022, I got invited to the FTX arena to participate in a Shark Tank mock meeting for mm -hmm. underprivileged high schoolers in the Miami-Dade area, and his 84-year-old aunt was putting this on, and they were raising several million dollars for this project. And so Kevin O'Leary okay. from Shark Tank, myself, a few others, including Senator Cory Booker, all showed up mm. to help with this charity event. And I went to the basketball game the night before, and I spent the night with Sam's dad, who was a professor, Professor Joe Bankman, mm -hmm. his sister, who was 84, who was running the charity event, and his mom. And uh, I was taken by them. You know, I found them to be nice people, and obviously they were well pedigree. They had great reputations. And so, you know, there's an expression that you know, well-known cliche, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. I thought that these were very good people. And then this was the critical core, critical mistake. A lot of my friends were already investors. You know, Novogratz was in there. Larry Fink was in there. There's a whole group of guys that 
made venture capital investments or sovereign wealth fund capital allocators that I knew that made investments with Sam as well. And it got me very comfortable. And so that's a probably longer story than you wanted, but I like telling it because I think if your listeners tune in, they'll hear from me that some of it was the socialization, some of it was being taken by some rudimentary things that we get taken by, you know, vulnerability, trust, mm-hmm. and uh, connectivity, the social sort of groupings, group behavior, group think. And uh, obviously, in hindsight, it was a mistake, but you know, here's the thing. I've been very direct about it. I try to be as open about it as possible. What I would recommend to people is when they make mistakes like that, don't hide from them. I can't tell you the number of people that are under a rock waiting for this story to end that are not discussing it. It's way better to just be open about it and talk about it. I think my clients find that that's a sign of integrity to do that. I think they, they feel that it's a it's a good way to be. And so that's uh, another reason. And listen, you know, I'm going to make more mistakes. I'm a risk taker. Hopefully, God willing, if I stay healthy, I'll be doing this a very long time. And so there'll be more mistakes ahead of me. You'll be hopefully interviewing me about more of my mistakes in later (laughs) years. Let's say, let's put it that way. So a lot of it owed to just to you and to so many others. It seemed like a stand-up operation from a stand-up guy whose family you also knew and met and left a a, a really strong Mm -hmm. impression on you. And liked. And, you know, met, knew, and liked, and liked. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess looking back, has the experience changed the way that you go about due diligence on new investments or partnerships or beyond that, just the way that you build trust in new people, whether in business or otherwise? Yes and no. Uh, So yes, in the sense that we have to really follow the money and we really have to understand how money gets out of a firm or into a firm. And, you know, particularly a financial firm, financial crimes get caused were perpetrated by a small group of people. And so my mistake was I had met the compliance team and I had met the Sullivan and Cromwell former partners from the legal team who explained to me the business and the protocols and so forth. I didn't realize that he had a group of four, all of which pled guilty except for Sam, that worked with him on this scheme. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to the Bernard Madoff case, you know, that was a group of four or five people that created that crime. And so- you know, one of the things that uh, you have to look for in a due diligence situation is there's got to be lots of people around and lots of checks and balances in a financial organization. Because if there are, there'll always be a person of conscience that says, you know, that doesn't work for me. I'm, I'm not going to allow that or I'm not going to do that. And we didn't find that. We were probably too trusting, as was a group of investors uh, that I mentioned. Uh, so, yes, my guard will be up for that. But where, where I'm not going to change is in the risk-taking. I'm mm-hmm. looking at two deals right now. I'll probably invest in one of them. It could go to zero. Brett Harrison, you may recognize that name. He was the former president of the FTX US. And he had worked at Citadel and he had worked with Sam at Jane Street. He's a very sharp, very articulate young business executive. He started a company after he left FTX called Architect. And my son, who uh, runs a portion of our family's money, uh, made an investment in that through his fund. And I also made an investment in that through my a personal sleeve of my own assets because I wanted to set a sign that Brett was a good guy. He had nothing to do with any of the wrongdoing and he has a great new idea. And I wanted to be somebody that supported him in this difficult period of time. 
that business could also go to zero. So I don't think I'm going to be making investments any differently than I made them, but I'm going to have a sharper eye in terms of the due due diligence process. So maybe a a closer eye on checks and balances and due diligence, but the same sort of risk. I think that's ultimately the real lesson of the story. Okay. And I think as maybe one final uh, question on this piece, do you think that your response to your time in the White House and having to rebound from that has informed or paved the way for how you're facing the heat related to FTX. I know mm-hmm. you talked about how your philosophy on just getting in front of it and talking about it versus yeah. speaking. Yeah. Nate, if you're ever having a bad day, you should give me a call. <laughs> I'll give you my cell phone when this is over. Uh, as long as it's not health related, you know, and, you know, you don't have a sickness, God forbid. If you're just having a really bad day. You've been fired or something's going on, you know. I'll, I'll set the scene for you. I got fired from the White House. I was lit up by every late night comedian. I was torched by every cable news pundit. I was on the front page of 40 different global newspapers and ridiculed. And then I was parodied on Saturday Night Live. Uh, All that was painful. And my wife, about a week prior to my firing, I mean, she probably hated Donald Trump almost as much as like Melania hates him. (laughs) You know, she filed for divorce on me. So it was an absolutely brutal time for me and a brutal time for my family. Winston Churchill once said, you've never felt fully alive until you're shot at and missed. Uh, but I could add a statement to that. Or how about being on the cover of the Post several times in 2017, which I was. And so, mm. you know, painful. And again, if you went to a crisis communications manager, they would say, oh, this is terrible and drop everything you do in the media and run for cover. And this happened in 2017. So you could reemerge from this in 2020. And, you know, God, this is awful and terrible, blah, blah. It's like, this is not awful and terrible. I got fired from a job that I was doing. President didn't like what I was doing. We were fighting with each other. They blamed it on some comment I made about Steve Bannon. But trust me, you go look up the comment. It's literally one of the funniest things I've ever said. I'm not, <laughs> not going to repeat it here because it's probably not age appropriate, but it was an awesomely funny comment. Trump actually liked it. He f- laughed about it. So I didn't get fired for that. I got fired because we were butting heads and we were having an intellectual disagreement about certain things that he wanted to do and certain things that I was pushing back on him. He just, He doesn't like that. Mm-hmm. Also, I was getting a lot of attention as the communications director. I think my uh, press conference was seen by 40 million people. He didn't like that. And so he fired me. Um, I became very close friends with General Kelly. I'm very tight with Kelly and Conway, Robert Lighthizer, Secretary Esper and I are, are great friends. You know, we have this sort of Trump recovery network. And when I got fired, it was a big deal in 2017. After 85 other people got fired, uh, wasn't as big of a deal. So, you know, Guys like me and Ambassador Bolton or Bill Barr or Mark Esper, we sit around and hang out together, General Kelly, and we muse about the experience. You know, all things being equal, it was, it's was it been quite an experience. And by the way, I'm a blue-collar kid from Long Island. I got to give a, uh, a press conference on the White House podium, and I got to fly around on Air Force One. So it wasn't, it wasn't such a bad week, actually, when you really think about it. And I'm... Um, I'm the type of person that knows how to make a lot of lemonade from lemons. Mm-hmm. And and so, yes, this is consistent with that. This is a pretty big, pretty public failure. But here's the thing I would say to you, Nate, you live or die by the sword in the media. So I'm a high-profile person, and 
if I'm having a bad year, the media likes to write about it. There's a great expression in journalism, if it bleeds, it leads, mm. you know? And so if you're having a bad year, they put you right in there, you know? I think I have a picture on my phone, me sinking in a, a boat filled of Bitcoins. When Bitcoin was at 16,000, <laughs> they said yeah. the SS Mooch is going down Anthony Scaramucci has doubled his bet in Bitcoin and he's actually going to go out of business. I mean, I think my financial obituary has been written like five or six times. But, you know, the Bitcoin was 16,000 at that time. It's 35,000 today. So that mm -hmm. obviously didn't happen. And I, I think there's a message for people. Stay in the game. Be honest. Live your life with integrity. There'll always be opportunity for you. And uh, don't take yourself that seriously, okay? Because mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Mel Brooks has one of the best lines ever, Nate relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. Nobody. Okay. God bats a <laughs> yeah. thousand. So take it chill. You're not that important. Yeah. Charles de Gaulle once said that the graveyards are loaded with men who once thought they were indispensable, but it turns out that the earth moved on and uh, you got to not take yourself that seriously. And I don't mean you, Nate. I mean, no, I the generic, you. the generic you. That seems like a good way to think about it. And you bring up some great points about having people to commiserate with over the situation and just having a roadmap to handle moments of bad press or whatever it is in the future. And on that point, regarding your company Skybridge, I know you've had to deal with some criticism, even apart from FTX, surrounding other investments, a lot of which being in crypto. And I wanted to hear your comments on this. Is there anything that this point of view is overlooking or getting wrong? If you track these uh, cryptocurrencies, you're right. I had bad investments in cryptocurrencies, but you have to look at it in its totality. I am making the bet, as I said to my investors and people that are with me, I'm making a five-year bet. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that bet started in 2020, uh, November. It's three years later. We got two years to go on the bet. And, uh, you know, when I say bad, I really mean investment, but you know what I'm talking about. And, mm -hmm. and I think that this asset is mainstreaming. And if this asset has a $670 billion market cap today, and it could just trade to 50% of gold, okay, it's going to go up five, six, possibly 10 times from here. And uh, I want to be a part of that. I want my clients yeah. to be a part of that. And so when a new technology is adopting, it comes with a volatility curve. Amazon dropped over the first 10 years since Amazon went public, it went down 50% at least eight times. One time in the year 2000, I think it went down like 90%. So, you know, this happens. And uh, But if you stayed with Amazon, it's probably the one of the best investments that ever happened in the economic history of the United States. And so for me, I think we're going to win with Bitcoin. Uh, here's the one thing about journalism, and I'm not a baby. There's no crying in investing or sports or politics, you know, if I'm right and my Bitcoin, which I purchased in November of 2020 for $16,000 a coin, if it goes to 300,000, if I'm right, no one's going to write that article because it's just a positive article and they'll write the negative one. And, and listen, listen, you know, I'm a big boy. I get it. I, I get how it works. Well, on a positive note, I know that October was the best month in Skybridge's history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that might owe to Bitcoin, but can you highlight a few of the other drivers of this? Yeah, so beyond, we owned a ton, of, we owned a ton yeah. of a, a layer one technology called Solana. Mm -hmm. It was up about 70% for the month. I think Bitcoin was probably up 50 for the month. We have a very large sizable stake in that. Ethereum, okay. 
So those are the three coins that we own. And then there are technology investments that are tied to those, you know, Coinbase okay. being an example of that and a few others. And so our month was spectacular. And our large fund, our macro fund, if you will, uh, went up six and is up for 11% for the year. But our crypto specific things, those are the things people like to track because I think they're more volatile. You know, when one goes down 39, they write about it. And when it goes up 65, they don't. But we're we're cruising in those funds right now. So, but I'm not gloating. And I've been humbled by life and I've been humbled by markets. So I just want to make sure people know that we abide by what Socrates once said, right? I mean, the Oracle of Delphi said, know thyself. But what Socrates says, the wisest of us know that we know nothing. And so I'm not sitting here gloating. I'm here in the cockpit working, coming up with new ideas for the firm and new ideas for our business lines and new ideas for our investors. At the same time, though, I do think we have this very good macro long-term strategic bet. There's been some lack of discipline fiscally by the world's governments that are tied to fiat currencies. Uh, the U.S. debt is growing. You may have seen the news lately that the U.S. interest rate payments are going to be over a trillion dollars a year now. And so, you know, I'm not worried about the U.S. long term. I'm not even worried about the supremacy of the U.S. dollar long term. But I do think that people will want to hedge it and they will want to have assets like Bitcoin. Larry Fink, who's one of the largest investors in the world, is CEO of BlackRock. He's applied for a Bitcoin ETF. Mm -hmm. Skybridge Capital is one of the investors in that trust. I think we have about $10 million in that. We had to file a position, so it's a public position. And what I would say to you is, Larry said about two weeks ago that Bitcoin is a flight to safety. And if he's right about that, there's no reason why this can't be at least half the size of gold. But again, you know, listen- okay. You're asking really good questions. I want to just say this. Uh, when you get fired from the White House and publicly crushed like that, or you have this catastrophe that went on with Sam, it is humbling. Mm -hmm. And it also forces you to think about things you're doing right and things about doing wrong. I would say that I'm way more psychologically minded than I was 10 or 15 years ago. When you are a youngster in the business, and everything's going right for you. You have a tendency to believe your own BS. You have a tendency to think you have it figured out when others do not. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I wanted to ask, do you picture demand for Bitcoin mainly just for its use as a store of value, as in an alternative to gold? Or are you seeing or implying new or different uses? And all this being with the help of broader adoption, thanks to the approval of ETS for Bitcoin that's likely on the horizon. Yeah. It's a really good question. So the way I'm going to answer it is, it, it, for me, it just has to be an alternative store of value. It has to be digital gold. And it just has to get to half of the market capitalization of gold. And remember, uh, gold had a big upswing. It's been fairly flat as in terms of price, but it had a big move in its market capitalization once we had GLD, the gold ETF. And so I do think that the Bitcoin ETF will create demand. And one thing that's very different about Bitcoin versus gold is there's limited supply of Bitcoin. You can't make any more Bitcoin. Many of these coins have been lost too during the early adoption phase. So 
it just has to do that. But let's just quickly talk about some other applications. You know, the government of El Salvador has allowed it to be legal tender. There's a lightning network, this sort of layer two protocol that's being attached to Bitcoin that's batching the transactions and speeding them up. And we live in a country, the United States, that has a fairly stable currency. Despite current inflation rates, the currency is the reserve currency for the world. <laughs> and so it's harder for us to imagine a currency where all of us, all of the citizens of the United States have lost trust in the currency. But that happens in places like South America. It happens in places like Africa. And so just imagine if you could have this substitute where you could use it or it could be part of your daily arsenal. The government of El Salvador said to me, two economic officials came to see me during the UN General Assembly meetings. And they said, listen, you know, we have 15 million expats in the US. When they send money back to mom and dad, they go to Western Union. They're unbanked people. They go with $100 bills to Western Union. They say, please send this to mom and dad. Well, Western Union takes 10%, Nate. Mm -hmm. And so 900 goes to mom and dad, 100 goes to Western Union. If you could create a wallet-to-wallet -wallet transfer from a Bitcoin wallet in the United States to one in El Salvador, it would save that country $400 million a year. And I just want you to take that and think of the magnitude of that if we start entering into permissionless transactions between two parties, as opposed to always having a third party intermediating our transactions. So just, just think about this wonderful potential delayering mechanism that Bitcoin represents or other types of digital assets. And then all of a sudden you get very excited that it may not ever get there, but it could be a store of value or it could be a store of value plus that. And I, th I don't think that that's accurately reflected in today's current pricing. And you envision sort of a plurality of digital assets fitting into this picture. So Bitcoin on the one hand, maybe more as a store of value, but you're also bullish on Ethereum, Solana, and, and some others as, as well. Yeah, I think that there are other tokens. There'll be a few of them. I think there's a lot of competition in the layer one space, but I, I think that there will be a few tokens that people will be very comfortable with that they'll use to transact with each other. And uh, I think the blockchain is a gigantic advancement. It's very similar to the internet. And so you're not old enough to remember this, but I am. I When I would go to Europe at the age of 21, I needed to call my mom and dad. It cost me $15 to make a five-minute phone call. I think it was $3 a minute. And I had to wait on a line at the post office to get a phone booth to make that call. Today, we can log on to an internet cafe's Wi-Fi and make that call for no dollars. And we're getting there. We're going to get to the situation where we're going to transact with each other for no dollars. And it'll change the world in some ways. You know, people predicted that the phone companies were going to go out of business. They didn't. Mm -hmm. They just went into the pipes and plumbing of the grid and the internet. Just imagine where we'll be 25 years from now with the advancements in the blockchain. That aligns well with what you've said about Bitcoin being where the browser was in 1998. If that's true, there's certainly a lot of room for yeah, tremendous Yeah, well, that, well yeah. at least according to Glassnode, there's 4% adoption of Bitcoin globally, and that's roughly where the internet was back then. And one more question unrelated to crypto, but related to your firm. 
It looked like recently you were taking a look at Silicon Valley Bank's venture capital mm -hmm. arm. Is yeah. there anything you can mention on that or other major developments maybe getting into more of a venture investing space apart from cryptocurrencies or, or otherwise? Yeah, because I've signed confidentialities, I can't comment on that. So right. I apologize for that because you know I okay. like to comment on everything. And I don't know the difference between on and off the record, but I can say something broad to you that Skybridge is adapting and changing to the current market environment. In the last bull market, we did quite well. In the prior bear market, we did poorly. But in that bear market, we bought Citibank's fund of funds business. Mm. And so what I would say to people listening is that there's opportunity in bear markets. So in 2022, we got smoked and knocked to the ground. Uh, we're having a recovery here year this year, but you know when something of the magnitude of a few regional banks fail because of the jacking of federal interest rate policies by the Fed, um, there's opportunity. And so am I going to take advantage of those opportunities or at least try to? Yes, I'm going to do that. But I can't really comment specifically on that one issue for Fair the confidentiality enough. reasons. I figured that might be so. Thank you for going into that a bit. Uh, and now moving on to the macro economy, you touched on this a little bit, mentioning the debt crisis earlier, but I'd love to hear your top maybe one or two concerns for the US or maybe global macro economy. Well, I mean, the obvious concerns are I'm not in love with the wars that are going on. You know, the uh, if you study the 1930s, the United States was left out of the conflicts. You know, it didn't come until 1941 for us. But, uh, you know, this feels like 1938 globally. And so what do we know? We know wars are really bad. They're way worse than people think they are. They always are worse. You know, Putin thought he was going to hit Ukraine and be in Kiev in a week. Didn't happen. Dick Cheney thought he was going to hit Iraq and be in Baghdad in a week and own the country. Did not happen. We stayed in Afghanistan for 20 years. That was obviously a failure for the United States. Longest war in U.S. history. And so what happens is when these wars start, they run amok and they go haywire. And so just because I'm a student of human nature, you have to be worried about that. The flip side is you've got the post-pandemic anxiety that people have and the strong inflation numbers that I think have caused people to be fearful. But we also inducted so much capital into the economy to save the economy that you're seeing the aftermath of that now in terms of our very strong GDP numbers and the inflation numbers. I'm not overly worried about that. I think that will sort itself out. Okay. Um, I'm worried about the political tribalism in the country. Mm -hmm. We broke our system. If I could be brutally honest with you, we broke our system by allowing this duopoly of Democrats and Republicans to completely control the system, not allowing third or fourth voices into the system. And then they screened out their adversaries in their local districts. You know, So we have gerrymandering where the politicians are carving up these districts as they see fit. And so I say this rhetorically, but you'll get the point, are we in a real democracy if the candidates are picking the voters? I thought the voters were mm -hmm. supposed to pick the candidates. And so you have that going on in the democracy now. We've also allowed through this Supreme Court decision called Citizens United, we've allowed the very wealthy to spend unlimited amounts of money in politics. And so they are buying the politicians. And if you look at the legislation that's been passed 
in the 11 years since Citizens United was decided, it's decidedly skewed towards the wealthy. And so a lot of corporate welfare, a lot of special interest groups getting favored because they're lighting up their politicians and so forth. And the middle and poor are getting screwed. And they're getting angrier and angrier. And that's a recipe for a disaster. You know, we're not that much different than everybody else. We have a great country. It's a great experiment. We've got a flatter system and a more meritocratic system and a more of a diffusion of power. Uh, but we've allowed this uh, duopoly to concentrate power. And we've got people staying in power for multiple decades. And I think it's causing a lot of stress in the system. You know, mm. Donald Trump exists today as an avatar for the anger of a good 20% of the Americans that feel left out of the system. If you were living here in the in the United States in the 1930s and you were watching the specter of dictatorships and fascism, you'd be like, okay, I'm worried. We don't want that to happen here in the United States. And then you had the rise of Charles Lindbergh and Father Coughlin and Huey Long and Roosevelt had to fight those guys and he had to steer us towards getting into that war. He knew that we needed to get in that war to end that conflict because it was going to spill over to the United States. So, you know, we can't run and hide. We can't have this uh, isolated strategy. It doesn't work. And we have to do something to reconstruct a longer-term peace proposal. But we're, we're fraying right now. And some of it's as a result of a lack of political leadership. If you had to give a prediction... On the presidential election, do you have any thoughts? What would you say if you had to say now? It feels like it's going to be uh, Biden and Trump. And so then the question is, what happens? And I think it's hard to predict a year out because a lot changes in a year. Listen, I was with Donald Trump on October 7th when the Access Hollywood tape was released in 2016. Mm -hmm. And people said, okay, he's finished. 30 days later, or actually 30 and one day later, November eighth, he won the presidency. So that was a, a month. A lot changed over a month. So 12 mm. months is like a century in politics. But I think that the former president is going to be heavily wounded by these assaults in the court system. He clearly misappropriated and misused the top secret documents. He's been caught on tape premeditating the charge to the Capitol and the insurrection at the Capitol on the 6th of January, 2021. And he's got Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, who they gave immunity to. So in the next 12 months, as we stand here, I think he's gonna be heavily damaged by that. Yeah. That doesn't mean he's not gonna have ardent support because he's proven he can more or less do anything and there's a large group of people that'll be with him but I just don't think it'll be enough people to have him win the presidency. So I don't think President Biden should run. That's my honest opinion. Mm -hmm. He's 80 years old. He would be ascending to his second term at age 82. I don't even think that's responsible or fair for the country. Uh, I don't think Trump should run. Joe Biden is 80 years old, not 80 years young. Trump has appearance of more energy than Biden, but his brain is scrambled, you know, and he's not a great executive leader. He doesn't have great executive management skills. I think Joe Biden will beat Trump like a drum, just okay. like he beat Trump like a drum in 2020. Wow. Uh, noted. And to your point, we'll see what can change over the course of the remaining several months. And finally, just for one or two more questions, 
Uh, first, about the SALT conferences that you're involved in leading with your firm. Could you tell us a bit about this? What's upcoming? And is there anything you're particularly excited about next year for the rest of this year? So here's the thing I would tell you. I am, uh, I'm revamping that as well. So okay. we used to do one conference in Las Vegas. After COVID, it was impossible to go back to Las Vegas. And so we may someday go back to Las Vegas, but we decided that we would do two or three conferences a year now. And so they're slightly smaller, but I think equally impactful. And you mentioned the one in Singapore, but we're going to announce, and we haven't announced it yet, but you'll be the first actually to hear it. We're going to go to Abu Dhabi again in February. So the 28th of February, we'll be back in Abu Dhabi. And then we're heading over to uh, New York in May, and then likely, likely Hong Kong next September. And so we've changed the format a little bit. We've made it a little bit more user-friendly for capital allocators and for hedge fund managers to meet each other and sort of do capital raising. But we've also continued to bring the high-profile personalities that we think people want to meet day-to-day. Awesome. And I guess finally in wrapping up, a question about you sort of outside of business. Is someone with a big family and a business to run, running this conference, all the speaking that you do in the media, how do you find time to relax and are there any hobbies that you've been developing lately? Nate, the you know what the bad news is for you? This is my hobby, Nate. <laughs> I have a podcast called Open Book where I interview authors. You see all the books I've got stacked up over here, books behind me. I, I interview all kinds of best-selling authors. Uh, I write. I have a new book coming out in April, which is called From Wall Street to the White House and Back. It's just a fun uh, story. Some of it I've told here on your mm. podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I, this is what I like doing. David Rubenstein, who was at Carlisle, I guess is the chairman now, but he ran Carlisle with a couple of his business buddies. He has this beautiful house on the bluff in Nantucket, overlooking the Atlantic Ocean, spectacular. And when you go to the front door, there's a sign on the door that says, rather be working. <laughs> okay, so he's my role model. I like working, so I hope I'll be working for a very long time. It energizes me and it gives me new things to do and new challenges. All right, Anthony, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for coming on our show. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been good. No, my pleasure. Great to be on. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please follow us on social media or give us a review. We appreciate your support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton FinTech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the FinTech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafa Austria. And until next time, I'm your host, Nate G.